All right, Ephesians chapter 1. It's good to see everybody here this morning. So glad that you're, you've joined us. Um, I just want to continue to reiterate what a, what a delight it was last Sunday uh, for those who were here and those who, who went in the covenant with us last, last Sunday. Very, very exciting times, very exciting day in the, the life of sovereign grace and, and in for the future of, of, of our body. Uh, I think it's could, uh, could be put down in, in the history of, of what, what's happening, what the Lord is doing, and what He is building and accomplishing here. And in our prayer, uh, like the last verse of the song, that, that Christ would build His church is to, to constantly remember all of us that Christ is building His church and He's building us. He's building us into His church, His local body here in Statesboro, Georgia. So um, firmly believe and understand and trust in God's Word. Uh, that's from Matthew 16, by the way, that Christ will build his church and, and that that is what he's doing. That is what he's accomplishing in us and in you with every time that we gather together uh, uh, this morning. So let's, let's, uh, let's look at the scriptures together and uh, let's, let's read the text. Actually, I want to give you the questions first for those who are uh, doing the notes and going to help respond. Don't worry about Lydia. Ignore her. She's okay. She just needs to take a nap. Let's look, at, uh, let's look at these questions. First question is this. What is meant by adoption? What is meant by adoption? That's the first question. Second question is what part has Jesus in the adoption of the elect? A little more chunky. What part has Jesus in the adoption of the elect? And then number three, list out what it means for you to be adopted as a son or daughter of God. List out what it means for you to be adopted as a son or daughter of God. Does everybody get those? What is meant by adoption? What part has Jesus in the adoption of the elect? List out what it means for you to be adopted as a son or daughter daughter of God. Let's read the text this morning, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, to recap this morning of what we've been covering I want to um, kind of cover what I didn't get to cover last time we gathered in verse 4. If you missed it, you can go on to uh, uh, our, our sermon uh, audio site that we have and, and, and listen and catch back up. Uh, but to do so, what I want to do is I, I want to I kind of give a personal testimony first of the progression that I took in, in my life to come to what we would call the doctrines of grace. 
And in the doctrines of, of grace, I think for those who believe it and see it within Scripture, it's not just something that's different called the doctrines of grace. I would say, biblically, that this is the doctrine of salvation. This is how God has saved his people, right? So, so this is not just something different. This is what the Bible clearly teaches. So, when, and, and for some of you, that was your first time two weeks ago to really hear a, a, a lengthy uh, a, a explanation of what the doctrines of grace are, uh, particularly what unconditional election is and what does it mean for God to save the person unconditionally before the foundation of the world as the scripture teaches us. And, and for some of you, that was your very first time in hearing it. And, and for us uh, that heard it for the very first time, it was very difficult to hear. In fact, some of it might have been just overwhelming. A little bit harder to process. One, one person that I was speaking to uh, told me it was just a lot to take in. I've never heard it explained in a lengthy way such as that. It was hard to, and it wasn't an indictment against the speaker, or at least maybe it was, but, but more or less it was just to say it was, it was, it was deep truth. It was, it was steak and potatoes of God's word. And, and I'm not trying to say that boastful of how I was preaching, but it's God's word. It's God's word uh, taught uh, to us. And so when I was in college, which, which uh, was a while ago for us now, and when I was in college, I, I was called into the ministry when I was a, a senior in high school, and I decided to go to a, to a Bible college. And I went to the Baptist College of Florida in North Florida. And, and it was there, of course, I'm, I'm going there. I'm like, yeah, I'm called. You know, I'm the coolest guy in my youth group because I know the Bible and all that junk. And, and I got there. And, and I quickly realized how much I didn't know about the scripture. That was point number one, day number one. Um, and, and I felt like a fool. I, I really did. I felt like a fool. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into when it came to God's word and understanding God's word and then being able to teach it. All I knew is I, 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 I felt a calling. I knew it was there and I had a, a passion to do ministry, right? And so, so I stuck in there. Right? I wasn't going to go home and I wasn't going to quit. And, and it was there while at school, I, I was encountered with the very things that we've been talking about and what Paul is teaching us in, in Ephesians, and such as words like election and, and predestination. And, and a person who was in church for a good six, seven years or so before I was saved, or after I was saved, I, I had never heard of this terminology. I've never heard even that. I mean, it's biblical. It's right there in the, the Bible. I mean, you don't even have to, to hide it, you know? And, and yet I was hidden from this. I was either blinded to it personally or I was intentionally duped, right? Meaning, and, and I, I, I love my pastor. I still love Pastor George and I pray for Pastor George and I pray for the church that I was a part of, but I was not taught the Bible like this. And so when I began to become encountered with such things and me and my friends and, and, and some of y'all have met Neil. Neil's one of the morons that taught me this stuff and, and, and some of y'all might have met some of the other ones, but but me and my friends, when we started getting encountered with this stuff, it began to shake our world and our foundations. And in fact, some of us, I, I just kind of went for the ride, but some of my friends, they, they really, they really took it hard. I mean, they, I mean, it was just earth-shattering. I mean, it was like telling them that, that their parents died. I mean, it was that earth-shaking to them. And it may have even questioned some of their salvation. 
And as we begin to learn together, my friends, I'm so thankful for my friends. I, I think I learned more from my friends and the challenging of, of my, my, these godly men that God providentially put around me. I think I've learned more from them than I've ever learned anywhere else. And the way that they challenged, the way that we, we grew together in this. And it was a hard progression. It was hard to believe this. It was hard to, to see this. Because number one priority of Ben going into the ministry was Ben. And when I saw that it wasn't Ben, even in my own salvation, even in the determining of my salvation, and I saw that it was God, it was earth-shattering. And then when I began to rest in it, not wrestle, but when I began to rest in it, it became like a warm blanket. I like that. My Christina talks about God's sovereignty as a warm blanket. And that's what it became, a warm blanket for my soul. A warm blanket for for my life, a, a warm blanket of trusting in the promises of God. When I realize that my life is to be spent for His glory, that changed it all. And, and that's what this text does. That's what these, that is what the doctrines of grace do. This is what the doctrine of salvation does for us. So that's the first thing I wanted to recap with. I wanted to bring that, that side. The second thing is I want to bring some pastoral thoughts of importance of unconditional election. Some, some important thoughts of, uh, for us uh, for unconditional election. I got five of these really quick. Uh, number one, not all things are good for us to know, and so God has not revealed them to us. And there are some things that are good for us to know, even when we can't explain them fully. And that's what I believe this is the doctrine of election does for us. Is that there are some things that we are not going to completely know. We're not going to completely understand. And we get that. We're not going to have it exhaustively. We, who can know the mind of our Lord? Romans 11. Who can know the mind of our Lord? Who can, who can search out all of His ways? None. We can't. And so when we approach this Doctor, when we approach this, this truth of what Paul is bringing out before us and revealing to us here, we come to it very humbly. We come to it very humbly because we believe that it is good for us to know these things even though we may not know everything about it. Right? For, for example, there are things that you teach your children that they may not understand why, but you know it's good for them. Right? You, you teach them to chew with their mouth closed. Why? They may not, I mean, no for, not for really any good reason, except for it teaches them how to, to be respectful in, in, in community when they're, when they're out to eat and they know how to, to present themselves. There's reasons why we do things that we explain to children that children may not understand. Right? That's why our kids ask why a lot. Right? And the same thing with us. Same thing with us when it, when it approaches us, that we things that we may not understand, but we know that they are good for us. Point number two, the doctrine of election has a strong tendency to make a church, to make a church rigorous about the truth and the truth of the Scripture. And it also keeps us from drifting into doctrinal indifference and a conformity to culture. So hear what I said there, that the doctrine of election has a strong tendency to make a church rigorous about the truth. 
that the believing in this, it, it causes us and helps us to trust and lean in God's Word more because we are dependent upon God's Word. To this point, John Piper said that the, the doctrine of election tends to give firmness and fiber to flabby minds. It tends to produce robust, thoughtful Christians who are not swept away by trendy, man-centered ideas. It has amazing preservative power that works to keep other doctrines from being diluted and lost. In general, it tends to press onto our minds a God-centered worldview built out of real, objective truth. I wish I said that. It does. It does. I, I, I cannot tell you even personally how much my, my, the way that I look at Scripture, the way that I, I, I hold God's Word even more sacred, and I want to make sure I get everything right according to God's Word because I hold to such truth. One of the big reasons why we have separated ourselves is because of this very point. Because we were sick of weak, ineffectual theology that has no good or no purpose for your soul. It's like eating candy all day long. Nothing. Weak, ineffectual, no good. We believe that it will cause us to be deeper. Number three. The doctrine of election is one of the best ways to test whether we have reversed the roles with God. A man-centered theology versus a God-centered theology. And I'm going to tell you, every single one of you, you are, you are born with the tendency to be man-centered, to be you-centered. Every one of us. And that's why it was so earth-shattering for me because Christianity and God and Jesus and the cross and Easter and Christmas was all about moi. It was all about me. As it is about you. And when I come to believe this, that, that foundation by which I built my life upon Ben, which I just kind of pulled Jesus along with me, was reversed. It was reversed. What the doctrine of election does is one of the best ways to expose. If you're offended, it's exposing. It's exposing the man-centered role of your theology instead of being God-centered. And I want to be God-centered. I want us to be God-centered. I want us to be Christ-centered. Number four, the doctrine of election is this, a humble embrace. Not the discussion of, not even the intellectual belief in, but the humble embrace of the precious truth of election and sovereign grace, which produces a radical, loving, risk-taking ministry and missions for us. The humble embrace of the, of the, the doctrine uh, doctrines of election is one in which is the, embraces the sovereign grace of God and produces a radical, loving, risk-taking ministry and missions. We talked about that two weeks ago. Go back, you can listen to some of that. That, that the doctrines of election does not keep us stagnant. 
It doesn't keep us to ourselves, but it gets us bold for missions. It lets us take sacrificial giving and going and radical risk-taking for the glory of God. And number five, we do not want to think of election apart from Jesus Christ. God doesn't tell us, we talked about this two weeks ago, God doesn't tell us who the elect are. I said, I said two weeks ago that there's not a sign on the back of everybody's head to tell who we're to witness to. God doesn't tell us who the elect are, and we're not to figure that out or try to, try to uncover that within the Bible and see what number code shows it in everyone's phone number or something. But what we do know, what is revealed in the, in the Scripture is that those who are a part of the elect are those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when the Bible tells us in John 3.36, says whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, we can firmly believe that they are of the elect. In 1 John 5.10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And if the testimony is in you, that person, we know that we are of the elect. He knows that he is of the elect. So five pastoral thoughts really quickly. I wanted to recap that or bring that to you in, in light of what we talked about two weeks ago. So when we went over verse 4, we approached verse 4 in, in sort of an academic fashion. And I tried to uh, show you biblically making arguments um, about how, why we are to delight and embrace the truths of the doctrine of election for uh, for our joy. And so we uncovered in, 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 uh, so many different places in the Bible where this is it. This is not just something that's by itself, that this is a theme that runs throughout um, all, all of the Bible. So we, so we reasoned, like we reasoned it, and we even looked at the ones where people would say, ah, what about this one? You know, we even looked at a couple, couple of those texts ad- addressing those as well. But today what I want us to see, and this is what I think Paul is really doing in this whole entire passage, is in saying the the spiritual blessings by which he has blessed us, we said that the first one of those we should always remember first and forefront of our minds is that we are of the elect, that that you have been saved. And this is the second spiritual blessing that we have received, according to verse 3, is adoption, is is adoption. So, so today, we're talking about adoption, we are going to look at it in more of the, the emotional side, the feeling side of this, because I think that's what Paul wants you to do, right? And, and there's, a, um, there's a phrase that I, that I like, that, that we think deeply so that we can feel deeply, right? We, we think deeply in these truths. We want to dive into these truths in the depths of God's Word so that we can feel really deeply about the joy that we have and, and the Lord. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. So let's start off with asking a few questions. These aren't part of your note questions, but these are questions just to get our minds thinking as we look at the passage. Is there an area in your life that you're struggling with? Is there places in your life where you're struggling with sin? Fear, doubt, anger, bitterness, lust, name it, right? It's out there. Is there an area of, of area that you are struggling? You're giving into sin. And in this area that you're giving into sin that nobody else knows about. That, that nobody else knows about. Is it a sin that you're, you're tired of dealing with? It's making you sick almost to think about right now. 
that if they knew this about me, it's something that disgusts you. Is this how we feel and what we believe and how we feel when it comes to our sins and it comes to our failures? That if we were exposed just that little, we would be shunned, excommunicated, disciplined. Now let me ask you, how much in your daily life, how much effort is put into running from that sin or hiding it or covering it up or rearranging things so that no one will see, kind of like playing the, the game with the three cups with the ball underneath it. You're just keeping it going long enough that no one will see so that no one will be disappointed in us so that, so that we won't be ashamed because we, we want people to like us. We want people to approve of us. We want people to look up to us, not as a fraud. How much effort is it also that we take to try to hide that from God? To hide these things from the Lord, to, to cover up our exposed nakedness before the Lord. How much effort? As if, as if some level that your relationship with, with God is, is, is in such a way that he's just kind of tolerating you because of your sin. And you're constantly living in fear because you're never going to live up to that potential. That potential of, of that sinless life. Have you ever thought of those things? Do you believe that now? I know I have. And for several years of my life, I lived in that fear. And I got really, really good at putting on masks and looking good. In light of how we've, we're answered those questions, let me ask you, what kind of life is that? What kind of life is that, particularly in finding our identity in Christ? It's miserable. And it's exhausting. Some have jumped off. It's exhausting. You can't, you can't, you can't live up to those, to those burdens and to those fears and to those failures. And so we want to bury those things as far as we can. And yet, according to the Scripture, and what we're going to read this morning is those very things that we are running from. Number one, God already knows. <laughs> the very things that we are running from. And as I want to tell you this morning, that is the very reason why Christ died on the cross for you. So let's look at our text. The motive. The motive here. The motive of, of election, we see it kind of at the end of, verse, end of verse 4 there, is in love. We left that off intentionally uh, last time. Um, whether you realize it or not, that the, the chapters and verse numbers did not come until way after the Bible was put together. They were only put there for your help, right? So that we could actually say, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, right? It, it was there for your help. Wasn't to be, uh, you know, they're not part of the canon. Uh, uh, Paul didn't write little numbers down and things like like that. So uh, chapters came, you know, somewhere around a thousand years after 
the Bible was put together, and uh, I think verse numbers came around 1,400 years after, afterwards. Also, the, the Bible wasn't written with, with punctuation. Believe it or not, it was not written with punctuation. In, in Koine Greek, there was no punctuation. So, so where that period lies there in verse, between verses 4 and verse 5 is somewhat debatable. It was more or less kind of the, the idea. And so there's two ways in which we can look at this, look at this interpretation of looking at the, the in love passage is to read it along with uh, verse 4, which, which, by the way, would make a lot of sense as well, that we are to be holy and blameless in love. Like that, that totally makes sense. And I think if that was the intention of Paul and the intention of the Holy Spirit, it would absolutely make sense that we are to pursue holiness and pursue blamelessness in love. That kind of keeps you out of the, 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 the Pharisee zone, right? Kind of keeps you out of the, being a hypocrite. But what I think this passage should go, and, and that's actually if you have an ESV, you see where that period is lies. It lies right there uh, uh, before in love. And so in love actually goes with verse 5. That's where I think it, it, it lies. And like I said, it can go either, either way, but this is where I'm, I'm interpreting it here. And in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons, as sons through Jesus Christ. That it's in love, in love has, has God accomplished such great grace. In love has God so loved us, so particularly that he sent his son, right? So particularly that he also predestined you before the foundation of the world. So we're not going to really unpack predestined so much because it's exactly what it means, by the way. It means predestined. It means predestined. And, and God, in his infinite love, in his infinite mercy and grace, he loved us so particularly that he predestined us before the foundation world, that you would be in him. That you would be in him to be sons and daughters. If you've missed this part, and you get caught up in the, the offensiveness of God's grace, and this is what just, and you just want to build walls with arguments and divisions, and you've missed the great point of this great blessing for the church, is that God in his infinite love loved us before the foundation of the world. And for no particular reason, because you're awesome, because none of us are, he loved you. And he, and he chose you in love. In love particularly, individually, corporately. And the authority that we see here in this passage after the motive is, is God's work of ordaining, foreordaining, decreeing, predestined, deciding beforehand. And we see the word predestined six other times in the, in, in the New Testament. Now, now we can we can predetermine things, right? Like we can say that this goes here, and I'm going to predetermine that that uh, that this milk is going to be set for breakfast tomorrow, right? But sometimes the milk is not always there tomorrow, right? Sometimes a kid comes along and drinks about a half of it, and then no longer is it there for breakfast tomorrow. How far does our predetermining go? As far as us saying I pre I preplan and I predetermine it to be. Right? So our way of predetermining is not the way God is predetermined. God's predetermination is one that is set. It is one that is sure. And guess what? It will be accomplished. 
So whom God has predetermined before the foundation of the world will be saved. Will be saved. God has never lost a one. And he will never lose you. Your assurance, your assurance this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, is not based on your ability to be obedient to the law, but is solely on what Christ has done in obedience to the Father on your behalf. And guess what? It is finished. And that pre predetermined plan was before the foundation of the world. God's authority. Number three is the result. The result of that, that predetermined plan was adoption to sonship. To call us out as sons and daughters, right? Here's, here's one of those, those kind of a gender neutral kind of way to interpret this. That he's not just talking about dudes, but he's talking about the men and the women. The boys and the girls. God has called us to be sons and daughters. To be heirs. To be heirs. To inherit the blessing from, from our Father in heaven. So the result of, of God's sovereign election before the foundation of the world and determining us was to save us for adoption and call you a son and daughter. To call you a, a son and daughter. Yes, we are, we, are, we are God's servants. Yes, we are citizens of heaven. And yes, we are friends of God. But even greater in that, by God's sovereign grace, He has also made us sons and daughters, children of God. And how has he done that? He has done it through adoption. I love it in, 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 in John, Jesus calls it grafting in. And he grafts us into the great vine. So what does it mean to be adopted? Well, a... A definition of adoption is to assume the, the legal and moral responsibility of a child and assimilating that child into the family with, with no distinction in essence between other members. Meaning you, you bring that child into your home and you call them by name, right? And give them a name. And here, this is what the Lord does. The word was, was, common, was a common, uh, more of a, a Greco-Roman word. It wasn't really a, a, a word that the Hebrew people would necessarily understood. But if you were Greek, you understood this. Because adoption in the Greco-Roman world actually meant something pretty good. That if you were adopted and brought into a, someone's home, not only were you granted citizenship into the Roman Empire, but you were counted one of the greatest of all of the sons and daughters that they may have. And in some families, they would elevate the adopted son above even the natural-born children. And you never, you could disown your kids that you had, but in the Greco-Roman world, you can never disown your adopted son or daughter. You can never. And this is the connotation that, that Paul is, is bringing up to us here. This is the connotation that he's, he's bringing to us here. We see the, the spirit of adoption that flows through other places in, in the Bible, such as Galatians 4, such as Galatians 4, it says this, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were 
under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because, listen to this, I love this, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that, guess what? You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Then an heir. Romans 8, 12 through 17, it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by God, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are of God and are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Listen, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry once again, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We see adoption running through the New Testament. We see the, the benefits and joy and glory of, of, of adoption. It draws us into a, a deeper, emotional relationship with God. If your relationship with the Lord is just contractual, you may not be a Christian. You get that? If it's just contractual, God, I'll do this if you do this, that's not the spirit of, of adoption that, that leads us to cry, Abba, Father. That grants us as heirs with Christ. In contrasting God's adoption with, with human adoption, Charles Spurgeon said, a man when he adopts a child sometimes is moved thereto by its extraordinary beauty or at other times by its intelligent manners and winning disposition. But beloved, when God passed by the field in which we were lying, he saw no tears in our eyes till he put them there himself. He saw no contrition in us until he had given us repentance. And there was no beauty in us that we could induce him to adopt us. On the contrary, we were everything that was repulsive. And if he had said, when he passed by, thou art cursed and be lost forever, it would have been nothing what we might have expect from a God who has been so long provoked and thus majesty been so terribly insulted. But no, he found a rebellious child, a filthy, frightful, ugly child. He took it to his bosom and said, Sinful though thou art, thou art comely in my eyes through my son Jesus, Unworthy thou art, yet I cover thee in his robes. 
and in thy brother's garments I accept thee. And taking us all unholy and unclean, just as we were, he took us to be his children, his forever. This is adoption. This is, this is the adoption. And Paul doesn't stop there, but he continues to unpack the, 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 the chief end of, of, of adoption and, and, and bringing it about. We see here in verse, at the end of verse 5 and verse 6, he says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. The standard of God's action and foreordaining us to be his, his children is seen right here in according to the purpose of His will. Other translations, if some of you have all wrong with some other translations, it may say, it may say that according to the good pleasure of His will. And as I, as I looked that up, I was actually kind of kind of disappointed a little bit in the ESV because I kind of read that more in the, in the, in the, origin, in the text more than I saw it uh, translated here. And I really believe that that's what he's really getting at here. That it is in accordance to the good pleasure of God's will. The good pleasure of, of God's will. So what this shows us is that, is that God is, is, is working out the purpose of his will but that God also delights in working out that pleasure or working out his will. That he is taking pleasure in working out his will. He's not looking at you and being like, oh, geez, I've got to save this one. No, he's delighting in saving you. It is his pleasure to draw you unto himself and save you and regenerate you and cover you in the righteousness of Christ. He's delighting to do so. It is by his good pleasure. He is not loathing to do so. God's purposes here are redemptive in a sense that is calling us into this special relationship with him. And according to his good pleasure, God's will, we talked about this on Wednesday night, that God's will cannot be thwarted that there's no outside force that impinges upon his sovereignty. And you can believe this, that God's sovereignty is working for our joy. He's working for our delight. So the faulty view of a disappointed father, a disappointed God in you, look as he looks at you, for you to finally get things right is completely unbiblical. Completely unbiblical. And he has done this according to the purpose of his good pleasure for his glorious grace. And by his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. God has found great pleasure in sending His Son. God has found great pleasure in using His Son to be that sacrifice, to be that atonement, so that you can be justified, that you can be atoned for, that God's wrath toward you, justly toward you, can be appeased, 
and satisfied. But even more than that, God is not just the, the righteous judge in which his wrath has been satisfied, but by his glorious grace, he has brought you into his home. And he gave you a room. He gave you a bed to sleep in. And he feeds you dinner every day. And he gives you breakfast. And he gives you toys to play with. He celebrates Christmas with you. He takes you on vacation. He wants to play ball with you. He wants to take you to the daddy-daughter thing, right? Or the girls, right? Yes. That's right. He wants to take you there. He has brought you into faith. And even more importantly than that, brothers and sisters in Christ, he has given you a name. He has given you a name. As that lowly child sitting in, in, the, in, the, in the field, as Spurgeon said, desolate, downtrodden, not wanted to be adopted by nobody. And brothers and sisters in this world, there are children who are like that. They don't want to be adopted. They don't want to be brought into a family. Their hearts are hardened toward anybody that wants to take care of them. And that's how each and every one of us are before God. And yet in his divine, glorious grace, he has drawn us and adopted you and given you a name. He gave you Jesus' clothes, right? I mean, he, he gave you Jesus' robes and Jesus was glad to give them to you. He made you a brother or sister to Christ himself. He's given you an inheritance that, that nothing in this world can compare to. He is not just our judge. He is not just the Savior. He's not our friend, but He is our Father. He is your Father. And some of you who never had a father, or for some of you that had a very bad example of father, this is comforting right here. This is, this is comforting right here. When I was young, I would get in trouble quite a bit, to say the least. Um, and it, it was so bad that, that I was, uh, I'm one among five, but that my, my dad would call me the whipping post of the family uh, because I would get spanked a lot. Y'all can laugh if you want. And some of y'all are like, no kidding. Um, and... Eventually, what I realized and, 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 and the amount of trouble that I got in is, is I didn't like the consequences of my actions. Right? And, and, I, and, and not liking my consequences of my actions, I, I would, I would want to hide my mistakes or I would shift blame like, no, he did it or he made me do it or something like that. I'd blame one of my brothers. Um, and, and by the way, they, they never worked. They never worked. I never could hide things just right. I never could get away from it just right. It was always, always was found out. And, and by the way, I don't look at that as a bad thing. I look at that as a really good thing. I see that as God's grace and God's mercy in my life. Um, getting caught is a good thing. Um, and and now, that I am, now that I am a father and I'm on the other side, I'm on the other side of things, as my dad said I would be one day, um, I, I see my kids... Um, falling in the same footsteps as good old dad. Um, 
they, they don't like consequences either. They don't, they don't like the consequences that comes to their actions when they make mistakes or, or, or do something that they're not supposed to. So as kids make mistakes and they make messes as they, as they, they do, um, kids will, will always try to cover it up. And one way that they try to cover it up is uh, they try to clean it up themselves. Um, Lydia is kind of moving into this mode. She's not here, so I can talk about her. Um, she's kind of getting into this mode, and some of the others have uh, kind of moved past it, and one of them is still in it. Um, and, and it amazes me that they'll spill a whole thing of milk, you know, on the table. And, of course, I was looking. I go, why didn't I put a top on that thing, you know? And it's all over the place, and, and they'll, they'll take their shirt, they'll take a, a rag, or they'll take a, a tablecloth, or they'll take a... a what are those, a placemat, and, and they'll try to clean it up. You ever tried to clean something up with a placemat? Uh, it doesn't work. Um, and, and so they, they'll clean it up, and they'll, they'll run away. Right? They'll, they'll leave it. And, and they'll run away from it because, number one, they, they, they feel like they're going to get in trouble, or they made a mistake, or they can cover it up. This, the second thing that they try to do is, is they, the same things that I did. They, they hide from it. They'll, they'll leave it there, whatever it is. Maybe they broke something or they took something, or they'll blame others. Which, by the way, is deceitfulness and lying, right? That's deceitfulness and lying there. The, the point is, in me telling you this, is that even though most of us are grown up, we respond the same way. We, we try to clean ourselves up. We try to make ourselves pretty before God, and we try to hide it, pretend it didn't matter, we put on our, our, our robes of fig leaves. We try to clean it up. Or we, we try to run. We, we blame others. We blame others for the, the bitterness that has really taken root. Or we, we blame others for, the, for the, the failures that might have taken place in our life. We blame others. Point is, we still try to clean ourselves up. We try to hide from our sin. Or we try to, we try to hide from God. Or we try to, we try to blame others. The problem with that attitude, and this is what I talked about in the beginning with the questions I was asking you, the problem with that attitude is it, it, it's, it's unbiblical. And what I want to set you free from is the slavery of that. And I think that's what, what Paul is telling you, is that, that when you receive the, the spirit of, of adoption, it's been called sons and daughters, is that when we make a mess, when we spill the, the milk in our life, or yogurt, or whatever it is that you like to spill, or Coke, or whatever we, we spill or do, or the struggle, or the great sin in our life that we struggle with, when we fail, is that the freedom that is in this text is we do not have to run anymore. It's futile. But we have a heavenly father who's not going to come down on you like a hammer. Or for some of you that might have had a father who had a very heavy hand. That's not God. The heavy hand hit his son. Hit Christ. The heavy hand hit, hit Jesus. And church, if we're, if we're ever to, to move forward in this life, if we're ever to, to move forward, we must understand that this is the, the massive part of the gospel we don't want to really mess up, that we don't want to forget, that you no longer have to run, you no longer have to hide, you no longer have to clean the mess up in hopes that, that God is not going to see it or are not going to deal with it. But what I want to tell you is that it's been dealt with already in Christ perfectly. 
and that there's no amount of cleaning of yourself that you ever can do to make yourself presentable before God. Christ has done that already. He has drawn you into your homes. He knew you were going to be messed up. He knew it. He knew it. He knew all of that. He knew I was going to be messed up. He knew I was going to bring the sin. He knew my my willful disobedience. But he still loves me. And as some of you love your children, and as some of you, you, you love your children, you kind of feel this a little bit like the way I'm feeling it right now. I absolutely despise it when my kids run from me. Man, I hate that. I want to show them the gospel. I want, to, I want them to know that there's, there's nothing that, that, that they can do to ever separate love from me. I love them unconditionally. I love them so particularly there's nothing that they can do to separate. Now, I'm going to whoop their butt. <laughs> you better believe it. And the Lord disciplines us. But know that the discipline of the Lord, is the, for some of us, and this one even from our parents, is not a punitive discipline. When God disciplines us, he doesn't discipline you because he's so angry at you that he loses control and just spanks you unconditionally. He doesn't take things away from you because he's, he's, he's mad at you. All of that anger, all of that wrath that we sometimes feel toward our kids, all that wrath and anger that God has had toward us, has been absorbed in Christ. And has all been given to him. All of them. So because of our adoption, quick implications, because of our adoption, stop running. Stop hiding. Stop running. Stop, stop hiding. Run to the Lord. I've said all, uh, numerous times, and I'll continue to say again, that the person who understands the gospel is that when they sin, they run to God, not from God. Because of your adoption, number two, stop trying to fix or clean yourself. Stop trying to fix or clean yourself. Number three, because of your adoption, delight in Jesus Christ and enjoy him for you have been given a new name. Number four, because of your adoption, you can have absolute assurance. Assurance of your salvation. Assurance that you are deeply loved by God. Number five, because of your adoption, pursue holiness and blamelessness because you are holy and blameless. We pursue holy, holiness and blamelessness because we have been made holy and we've been made blameless. You see that in verse 4. Number 6, because of your adoption, understand this, that you have been chosen now. That you have been chosen now to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to this world. That you have been chosen, brought into the family to proclaim the excellencies of of Christ in this world. In closing, I wanted to read something to you guys, but I, I totally forgot it at home. Um, so I'll, I'll just sum it up real quick. Um, uh, there was a story that came out a couple years ago. I think it was somewhere around 
2009, 2010, uh, after the earthquake in, in Haiti. And um, as you know, there's, there's a lot of adoptions that come out of, out of Haiti. And there was a little boy, uh, his name was, uh, in the article, was, was Ar Arno was his name. And, and Arno was about seven, eight years old, you know, no, no parents, no family, no, no grandparents, nothing to speak of. That's why he was in this, uh, uh, he was in this adoption home. And there was two, a couple in, in Holland who were wanting to adopt Arno, and it was about a two-year process. One thing is because they were, uh, it says, said that they were uh, infertile and were able to have kids. Um, and in that two-year process, <laughs> amazing they have kids, which is, uh, by the way, that happens a lot, actually. Uh, when people go through the adoption process, they end up getting pregnant as well. So they had a baby. Um, and then after that process, uh, they went to Haiti to, to, pick, up, to pick up Arno. And Arno uh, was, as, just as you would think, when, when new people would come to him, uh, you know, they, he, was very, he was very shy and very, very reserved, not wanting to, to play with them or not wanting to see them. But, but they knew Arno because they saw their, their pictures. I think his name was uh, Jim and Ro Rowena. Uh, they, they saw him. They knew what he looked like. And, and eventually, after about 30 minutes, he, he let go of the hand of the orphanage person and went straight to Rowena and held her hand. And they're playing and they're having fun. And, and over a couple days, they end up staying. When you do the adoption process, you stay in country for a while just to kind of let things, you know, settle. And, and they're over there in their hotel, which is a, a place where most people stay when they come through the adoption process there in, in, in Haiti. And in that time is when that earthquake hit. And, and, and in that, the story, the reason why this story made, uh, made news is because as the, the rubble of of this hotel was, was uncovered, um, there lied that little family, dead, and crushed by the concrete, crushed. But yet there was the mom, Jim and Rowena, there holding Arno and Arno holding them. And, and, and at that time, the, the, story, the story says that, that even though now there's a new orphan in Holland, Jim, or the other, or the little baby, that this orphan there in Haiti did not die alone. He died in a family. And, and he had a name. In fact, his last name was Pet. And we see, the, we see the, the picture of the gospel so beautifully magnified right there to us. And, we, and as Christians, we, we can look at that story and seek it so, so deeply that we were just like Arno. Nobody to speak for us. Nobody to, to, to claim us. Nobody to love us, and there was God in his great, glorious grace. Love us and save us. And give us a name and give us a family. And draw us unto himself, not because anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that it would help us to, to feel deeply of your grace and your mercy. I pray that it would set us free from the slavery of, uh, and, and, and even believing the lie to run away from sin and, and to run away from the things that we're most ashamed of. That now by, by grace we can bring those things into light because we know that you love us and we know that you have forgiven us perfectly in Christ. And so I pray now that as we respond that your spirit would, would move in us, Lord, in such a way 
in such a way that Christ would be honored, Christ would be glorified, and that we would find our deepest joy and longing in you. And for those this morning who don't know Christ, who who don't have that relationship with Christ, but but yet this morning the Spirit is tugging their hearts, I pray this, this morning, Lord, you would save them, you would draw them to yourself. And you would help them to make that, that profession to one of the elders this morning or to someone else. And we pray this, Father, in your name.